Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. So GitHub has a new feature out for DependentBot. It now supports private hex repositories. I'll be honest with you, the only private hex repository I know about is Ovens. But I'm curious if there are others out there, and I'm sure there are. I imagine there are some private repositories for uh, commercial, like for companies. Like they might have a private repo that they want to bring into multiple projects. Sure. So like for like their internal their internal code, right? Exactly. Internal stuff, yeah. Okay, well then why would you use uh, DependentBot for that <laughs> if it's your own internal code? Either way, and then a uh, hat tip to uh, Parker Silbert for uh, bringing this to our attention. I think he even developed this for uh, DependentBot, so big thanks to him. But yeah, now DependentBot is uh, supporting private hex repositories. In case you don't know what DependentBot is, it's a GitHub feature. It used to be its own product, and I think they they purchased DependentBot. But DependentBot is used to monitor vulnerabilities in dependencies used in your project. So it'll scan your either your mixed lock or your mix.exs file, I forget which, probably your lock. It'll compare that with a database of known vulnerabilities for projects and versions. So you definitely want to like have some code scanning like that to ensure that you're not you're not using anything with any active vulnerabilities on there. Just by default, it can scan the public hex repository, but previously you wouldn't know about any private stuff on there. I reckon it would just skip over that, but not anymore, not necessarily anymore. So that's a great feature. We got links on the show notes to go get more details on that. But yeah, one more big thanks to Parker Selbert for that feature. And next up, another handy CI tip for Elixir projects was shared by Rudolph on Twitter. It is a handy tip that is built into Elixir. It's mixdepths.unlock-check-unused. And I did not know about this one before. This is something you can add to your CI pipeline if you want to check that any additions to your mix files don't have extra dependencies that aren't needed. This was new to me. I tried it out on one of my projects and a hex library that I was creating that I that I have, I had forgotten that when I'd gone through multiple early iterations, I had these old versions, like these old names of what I was experimenting with the hex package. And it spotted that, oh, I still have those left around in my lock file and they're not used. So it works. And I thought that was really cool. So I updated a CI guide that I have as a blog post for Elixir with GitHub Actions and CI checks. So I updated this to add that there because I think it's a super handy one to help keep the hygiene of our projects nice and clean. It is really about the hygiene, right? Because I, I can't imagine that the effect of having unused dependencies and there being that big of a deal, it's not like it adjusts your code or anything like that. I, I guess maybe it could. But every time that you're downloading, you know, mixdeps.git or something, it's going to go get all those unused things too. So it's just more wasteful to have those unused things in there. So get them out of there, right? That's the point. Yeah, it just keeps your code base clean. Yeah. Who wants to download 10 dependencies that you don't need? Yeah, especially if they have like native dependencies in there too. You got to compile junk. Compiles longer, yeah. What would be lame is if the hex resolver had to resolve and make sure that these different versions could be part of your upgrade stuff. And that one of these ones that you're not even using is holding back another upgrade that you want. So it's like, yeah, it's like, just get rid of them. Next up, Hayden Evans spotted that Zoom is using Erlang in production for their chat platform. It was spotted in a LinkedIn job ad. 
We'll link the ad in the show notes if you're interested in checking it out, but it describes the role saying they're looking for a passionate person in the field of distributed computing, but it goes on to say that you should be able to contribute maintainable and well-tested code to a large existing Erlang code base that serves the needs of millions of users worldwide. So we thought it was pretty cool that Zoom is using Erlang. Speaking of big, large, distributed chat platforms, if you're a part of the Internet Society, you've probably heard of some recent Twitter drama. What's Twitter? <laughs> yeah, what's Twitter? What is that thing? Anyway, it's relevant to us because that's actually a, a big source of news that we get from what's going on in the Elixir community. And so when we pay attention you know, to the My Elixir status, for example, on the uh, Twitter hashtags, we get a lot of news from Twitter, I guess is where, where it comes to. But I won't get into the drama of what's going on with Twitter, but let's just say that ownership has changed hands and some decisions are being made and, and things just may not be things that you agree with anymore. And so if you're looking for what other things are out there, the big other thing is called Mastodon. And Mastodon is more of a protocol and a software, but it's more of a more about a protocol to decentralize chat, decentralize messaging, de decentralize all this other stuff, right? Everything that Twitter does. And so instead of like going to one Mastodon, you know, dot com or whatever it is, there's actually a bunch of other instances. There's like probably hundreds of them at this point, right? And these other instances all talk to each other. That's, that's the decentralized part of this, right? So if your instance goes down or, you know, they take, a, they take a left turn and start spewing some real hateful stuff and you don't want to support that, it's not as big of a, a deal for you to go jump to another instance that has a, a different set of rules about uh, what's acceptable on the platform. It's not putting all your eggs in one basket. That's, that's, that's benefit to something like Mastodon. But it's also more complicated because there's so many of them. A lot of decisions to make here. So I just wanted to mention a short list of some Mastodon instances that you could explore. It's it's a newish thing. Like, you may not want to do that. And that's fine. Change is hard. Change is hard for me. <laughs> I like Twitter. And in your opinion, change might not be necessary. But anyway, just want you to evaluate your options. Maybe you'll enjoy some of these. It all is about the community. And so if the community decides to move to these other platforms, you might want to consider following them. So some instances that you might consider, there is an Elixir and Erlang specific one out there called genserver.social. So that's genserver.social. used to be invite only, but I think they've opened up registrations. So that's one to consider. I'm on that one for what it's worth. There's also hackyderm.io. There's a lot of Elixir Twitter folks that went to hackyderm.io. Another good one is fostodon.org. And then uh, the last one I'll mention, and there's lots more to consider here, but the last one I'll mention here is mastodon.social. So I'll go through the list one more time. Genserver.social, that's one. That's Elixir or link specific. Hackyderm.io, fostodon.org, and mastodon.social. Those other three, they're tech-oriented, but they're not Elixir and Erlang specific. So you're going to find just a bigger tech community over there. Anyway, again, not going to explain the Twitter drama. Maybe you don't care, and that's fine. You know, a lot of folks are, are predicting the, the burn and crash and burn of, of, of Twitter. It hasn't happened quite yet, but I've definitely seen a, a shift in content there for sure. So anyway, take it as you will and, uh, and, and tell us where you think uh, the Elixir community might consider going to. As far as I can tell, genserver.social might be the place. We'll, we'll see. And last up, 
Lambda Days Conference is celebrating their 10th year of the conference. Lambda Days will return as an in-person only event. It's the first one I actually know of to scenic Krakow on 5th and 6th of June, 2023. So they've already opened up the call for talks and that window of time for talks closes the 15th of January, 2023. So if you're interested in presenting at this conference, you know, get your talk together and, and make a submission. Lambda Days is not specific to Elixir, although there often is a Beam and Elixir presence there. It is all around functional programming. So you'll see presentations on Haskell and functional concepts and lots of different stuff. So if that's something that interests you, you might definitely want to check that out. And this one would be in-person only that would get you out of your house and all the way over to Poland. But I hear Krakow is beautiful. And that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by Fly.io. You know, LiveView has been a game changer for how we build interactive web applications. When you deploy your application physically closer to your users, the experience is even better. That's what Fly.io lets you do. Easily deploy your apps around the world like people do with CDNs. What's more, Elixir and Fly.io feel like they were made for each other. It's so easy to set up clustered applications across data centers. Fly.io has over 20 regions around the world ready for your app. The secure WireGuard network means you can securely do cross-region PubSub with Phoenix. So many things become possible now that were just so hard before. Check out Fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Matt Trudell. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. I'm glad you could join us because when I was looking at the Phoenix 1.7 release notes, the blog post mentioned at the very bottom some groundwork that had been done to allow alternate web services to be plugged into Phoenix. Cowboy being the current web server, Cowboy is actually written in Erlang. And the Phoenix post said, thanks to the work by Matt Trudell, we now have the basis for first-class web server support in Plug and Phoenix, allowing other web servers like Bandit to be swapped into Phoenix while enjoying all the features like WebSockets, channels, and LiveView. And that was really my first real exposure to Bandit. And I thought, this is an awesome opportunity to reach out and have you come join us and talk about what Bandit is, what kind of changes are required to Phoenix to make this even possible to like swap out something as fundamental as like the web server and really like where this is going, what kind of benefits this can bring for us. So I'm really excited to dig into that. But before we go there, I'd love to hear more about you. Like where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I, I've been working in Elixir for about, uh, I don't know, five or six years now. I've been fortunate to be able to work in it full time for just about that entire duration. Worked for a few early adopter startups, did a couple early adopter startups myself. And I've settled in in the past, I don't know, nine months or so to work at PagerDuty. It's, it's a weird thing because they're the one of the, one of the, the larger, more prominent users of Elixir, but you also don't hear a lot about them. A lot of people are really surprised to hear that we use it to the extent that we do. But it's been it's been a fun place to settle in. In terms of where I actually live, sunny Toronto. It's well, not so sunny these days, but it's 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 a good place. It's a good place despite the weather. So I'm curious. You said you've been doing Elixir for about five or six years. What brought you to Elixir? Like, what were you using before that you thought I even want to check out another language? 
I mean, I've kind of done just about everything under the sun in my tenure in, in technology. Immediately prior to working in Elixir, I was actually writing iOS apps, uh, and I've been doing that. It's it's a bit of a long story. I came into it from the healthcare sector. Uh, I worked at uh, as a researcher at Toronto General Hospital for a number of years, doing a lot of early stage like health technology interventions, a lot of really early groundbreaking work with uh, using iPhones to you know, track diabetes management and track heart failure patients in the home and those those sorts of things. Consulted around that space for a number of years. And then the bottom kind of fell out of iOS development in, I don't know, 2016 or 2017 or so. It just got really systematized and really kind of big development shop focused, which didn't really mess with, didn't really jive with my idea of, you know, working as kind of a small consultancy. So I turned more towards the server, more towards the back end. I'd obviously written my fair share of Ruby and Rails, you know, in the years previous, just kind of doing supporting work for a lot of the projects that I was on, but I'd never really spent a whole lot of time focusing on it. And I just kind of fell into Elixir almost by accident. It was a a company that I was consulting for that was using it for um, a factory automation product. So they actually weren't using the website of it at all. They weren't using Phoenix at all. They were just using it mostly for Kafka consumption you know, for queue consumption and just just sort of the stuff that it's really, that it's kind of uniquely suited for amongst the, you know, the common languages and just kind of fell into it from there. Really, you know, really meshed with the functional paradigm. really, really liked it a lot. And I just kind of ran from there. I started doing some, you know, early work with some ancillary stuff. I wrote a library called Skedex. I did a presentation at MPEX in like 2018 where I used the Skedex library to actually build a drum machine. That was kind of fun. Uh, messed around with nerves for a bit, just kind of, you know, kicked the tires on it. I didn't actually write a line of really real web code in, in, in Elixir until, I don't know, maybe 2020 or so. And one of the first projects that I actually took on with that was working to build, we have one of those uh, ductless air conditioners in our house, you know, those wall-mounted ones that have the remote control on them. And we wanted to be able to, you know, turn that on and off when we're not here, you know, to be able to turn the heat on and turn the AC on when we're coming back from my in-laws or something like that. And those things, of course, have a remote control that's this physical, tangible thing. You can't actually wire them up to any, like, they're, they're not smart, you know. The technology is kind of straight out of the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so I got this harebrained idea that I was going to, you know, get a Raspberry Pi with a little IR blaster on it and hook that up, blah, blah, blah. It ended up being that I was like, okay, well, I guess I got to write a HomeKit layer for this thing now so that I can talk to this thing. We're an Apple family, so it's, you know, I wanted to be able to talk to it from HomeKit. So I started looking at what it takes to write a HomeKit implementation. And it turns out that HomeKit actually runs on HTTP. Like with every light bulb in your house or every, you know, smart like plug or whatever in your house that, that runs on HomeKit, at least the ones that are on Wi-Fi, they actually run a little constrained HTTP server on them. Uh, and that's how, that's the the the, the medium that, that HomeKit uses to talk to them. And so I started doing that. And then there's a couple of wrinkles. I'm not going to get into the details, but there's a few wrinkles in how HomeKit implements that, that you need to be able to talk to your implementation at a really low level, like right at a, at a socket TCP bits and bytes level. You need to be able to do things with your socket that you can't do with a typical web server. And so I'd been starting down the path of using Cowboy and Ranch to do that, just with a you know, simple plug server on top. And I realized that I needed to do these little bits and bytes things at a low level. So I thought to myself, you know, ah, what the hell? I'll just go and write a web server. It can't be that hard. And then that turned into, well, I guess I'm going to write a socket server that's just underneath it. Anyway, that was a 20, I don't know, 2019, late 2019, I think. And it just kind of went from there, honestly, like the whole project, the whole idea of Bandit and, you know, an alternative web server, it honestly, I, I mentioned this in a, in, in a thread on the Elixir Slack the other day, it, it honestly just started as a lull, like it frankly just started as a, like a little bit of a joke. 
And it, you know, I kind of wrote it with the intent of being able to use that to power my HomeKit library, you know, which has since been, you know, released and, 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 and works. And it's not been the star of the show that I had expected it to be. It actually turns out that the web server that I wrote along the way is the thing that actually has legs and the thing that's actually been, you know, the really compelling thing. So I kind of fell backwards into it. That seems like a, an incredible yak shave to to get you. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually funny. The the, uh, the the very first talk that I did about this at the Toronto Elixir Night back in 2019, I, I called it the first part, the first of a four part yak shave. <laughs> it was the ti- was the title of the talk. And I think I'm on I don't know part seven or eight by this point. All right. Well, I want to dig into this and learn more about Bandit. You've already kind of answered why you started it and why you created it. And one of the things that really strikes me is you initially create it to solve this more narrow focused problem. But then, you know, to be a full featured, full service web server, it has to do a lot more than probably what you were needing to do. What has that been like for taking on a lot more scope than the problem you're trying to solve? Right. So one of the things, the, the, the and in fact, it's the, it's the actual byline of plug of, of Bandit. It is a web server for plug applications. And I guess I, I think I've recently changed that with the with now the fact that we run WebSockets, but it's so a, pl- a web server for plug and WebSock applications. But ultimately, that's what it does. All it all it does is take HTTP requests on the one side and turn them into plug calls on the other. And so one of the de- really fundamental design principles that I had with this was that I didn't want to really have the web server really have Bandit have much of an opinion on things. So it, it doesn't, there's not really any policy in there beyond the bare minimum policy that you must have in a web server to, you know, to be secure and to conform to the relevant, you know, to the relevant standards. But it doesn't have any bells and whistles beyond passing things forward to plug. It doesn't really express much of an opinion on, you know, like it, where there's places that the behavior, for example, in HTTP isn't defined. It doesn't really have a, an opinion. It just passes that on to plug and lets whoever, you know, the plug on top of Bandit make make the decision for itself. So there's actually really not a whole lot there. And you can see this, like it bears out. I think the last time I looked, I think I think the Bandit project is at something like three or 4,000 lines of code right now. And that's like including, you know, pretty pretty copious documentation and, and, and any XDoc and stuff on top of that. There's not really a whole lot of there there. You know, it's not actually that much work to like... HTTP is a pretty straightforward protocol. You know, it's it's the kind of thing that I like. I always like to say, like every protocol that's worth doing should be doable as a fourth year as a fourth year project. You know, you should be able to get in there, do maybe not like a you know a, like a battle ready implementation, but you should be able to do, make a usable HTTP server as a fourth year term project. You know, as as a university student, and so it's you know, and that's about the scope of it. It's kind of, it's grown a little bit beyond that at this point, but like, there's really not a whole lot there. There's a lot less than people think there is. That's fascinating hearing just the smaller size than I was imagining. So I do want to touch on what are some of the responsibilities of a web server, particularly in this case where it's, you're saying, I'm just trying to do the minimum required to pass it off to plug. So what is it doing? Does it do connection pooling? Does it do certificates validation? I mean, it's pretty easy to get into the weeds here on this stuff. So I'm going to try to do the simplest kind of high-level overview I can think of. So the, the, the actual stack is actually two applications. There's two libraries. Bandit is an HTTP server. And beneath that, there's a library that's called Thousand Island. The term of art for it is a socket server. I have to ask the name. Like I'm assuming it's inspired by Ranch. Yeah, right. right, right. <laughs> Thousand Island is to Ranch as Bandit is to Cowboy. <laughs> 
I'll be, you know, full disclosure, kind of regretting the name choice at this point, but that ship has sailed, unfortunately. I can imagine typing Thousand Island a thousand times is not I fun. just think, I just abbreviate it to TI, so it's fine. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so Thousand Island is the the kind of the layer that sits below, like if you've, if you've ever seen like those network stack diagrams where they have, you know, like physical and then transport and then session and then application layers. Thousand Island is really the transport layer. So it essentially abstracts away TCP and it, well, it abstracts away sockets. The distinction there is that TCP is a socket, but also SSL connections are a socket as well. And so to the application that sits on top of them, which is Bandit in this case, whether you connect over TCP or you connect to over SSL, they provide the exact same abstraction. You can send and receive bytes on them. You can shut the connection down in either direction. You know, there's a bunch of different options you can set on the socket. They really only differ in how they're set up. And so, for example, with SSL, you pass in a couple of parameters for the certificates and the keys and whatnot, uh, you know, the ciphers you want to use. Thousand Island takes is is responsible for owning that abstraction, but it's actually Erlang itself that runs that, that that actually implements all of that. There's a colon gen TCP module within the Erlang standard library. There's a colon SSL module, and they provide both those two the respective abstractions. And both of those, in turn, just kind of layer right on top of the socket abstractions that the operating system underneath provides, either through you know OpenSSL or LibreSSL or one of the other new SSL libraries, or just on top of the Berkeley Sockets API that's you know built into Linux and every other OS. That's the lowest layer. And then on top of that, Bandit kind of sits there as an application and then runs the behavior of HTTP on top of that. So like what a lot of people have probably seen is, you know, if you have ever like telneted into a web server and you type in, you know, all in all caps, get slash HTTP slash 1.1, enter, enter, and, you know, you get back the response. That is all happening on top of a socket. So either on top of TCP or on top of SSL. But that is really where HTTP, the protocol starts, right? It sits on top of this simple abstraction of sockets of bytes going back and forth. The HTTP itself doesn't see anything different between HTTPS and HTTP, right? They're both the exact same kind of, you know, transaction back and forth. Just one of them is running on a TCP socket and one of them is running on an SSL socket. But that abstraction, the difference between those two is owned kind of by the layer below that, by Thousand Island below that. That's really interesting. So I love that you're able to leverage so much that's built into the beam to the OTP with SSL and a lot of those, a lot down at that layer. I've heard how Elixir and just the beam in general, but is really great at protocol matching, you know, with binary pattern matching on protocols, like where you have like the text of get and things like that. Was that kind of fun to work on? Well, so that that stuff, and it's it's funny, <laughs> the, the the beam actually provides an HTTP parser built in. <laughs> awesome! All right. So, and it, it's actually the same one that that Mint uses on the client side as well. So, the the one of the really neat things about HTTP as a protocol is that it it's mostly symmetric, right? So, the things that you end up when you're writing an HTTP client, like the Mint project is doing, or you know any number of other ones are doing, the concerns that you have as a client probably 80 to 90% shared with the concerns you have writing a server. Like in both cases, you write out, you know, like you read and write requests. There are headers that work in both directions. You, you know, can read or write bodies in either, in either direction. There's obviously a bit of a difference from a, you know, from um, the semantics of requests and responses are kind of inverted in the two cases, but the actual like 
nuts and bolts of sending stuff on the wire is is just is 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 very are, are very common between the two of them and so the mint the mint folks actually use the exact same parsing library that's built into erlang for this cowboy has since gone and written their own for this their own parsing library for this this is what the gun library is or maybe it's cowlib i think it's cowlib actually sorry is the library with within the cowboy ecosystem for that i might get to that point of writing my own parser uh, i'm un- i'm not really sure yet it's mostly going to come down to, I think, a performance and a scalability issue. And, you know, some of the numbers that I've been running, I spent the past several weeks, uh, speaking of yak shaves, the past several weeks building a benchmarking framework that I can use to, within Bandit, to be able to benchmark, to perform micro benchmarks when PRs come in so that I can just, I, I tag a PR with the benchmark label and then it goes, uh, the, the GitHub CI stack goes and runs a benchmark between that and the the, the head version of Bandit. And it gives me a comparative like that's faster and slower on a bunch of different scenarios and tracks the memory usage and whatnot. And so it's really easy for me at this point. This is kind of the work that I'm doing in the latest stack of 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 of, of releases for Bandit, mostly focusing on the kind of performance and the scalability aspects. It's really easy for me to be able to quantitatively look at those. And so some of the numbers that I'm doing where I can also compare the I can also use the same framework to compare against Cowboy. Even with fairly low concurrency numbers, Bandit still like several orders of magnitude faster than Cowboy. Like a lot of the numbers, I quoted this in my Elixir Conf talk in 2021, where I first released Bandit, that uh, we're up to five times faster than than Cowboy is. And those numbers still seem to be bearing fruit. And in fact, I won't be surprised if those numbers actually, if that gap ends up increasing even more in the near future. I'm, I'm, I'm hitting some doing some perf work right now within Bandit that's probably going to land us about a 30 or 40% increase by the time I'm done. So those numbers should increase even more. I, I remember upgrading Cowboy once and uh, to support HTTP2, and there was a way, there was an architecture that they had that like introduced a new process that really slowed things down. Anyway, there was a little bit of an optimization curve there uh, to get HTTP2 to work. I, I, I first heard about uh, Bandit during your ElixirConf talk, by the way. Great job with that, by the way. And at that time, uh, you didn't have WebSocket support working quite yet, but I think that's not true anymore. Now you have WebSocket support uh, today. Do you have any clue about what like the performance gain is with WebSockets through, you know, Bandit? I, I haven't. I, I wrote the benchmarking library with the expectation that I was going to be like it's pluggable, so I can plug in a WebSocket performance layer when I get to it. I'm just just in terms of like order of operation. I'm doing perf work on HTTP one right now. And then I'm going to do H2 and then I'm going to move to WebSockets. But like as, as a rough order of magnitude, there's a conformance suite for WebSockets called Autobahn. It's kind of the, 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 the gold standard conformance suite for clients and servers in the WebSocket world. And it's a big suite. It takes about five minutes for Bandit to run it. And it takes something like seven minutes for Cowboy to run the exact same suite. Think, you know, if you just kind of go from those rough numbers, we are a bit faster, not wildly faster, but I also haven't done any perf work at all on the WebSocket side. The way that I tend to approach these problems is to try, like, I, I first want to get it working, and then I want to get it correct, and then I want to get it fast. So so for the, the non-mathers out there, that turns into about 40% faster. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm not, I don't want to stand behind those numbers, because like I say, that's the, that's the only, the only like apples to apples comparison I've done is they have them, having them both run that suite. So, but beyond that, I haven't done any, any, any formal benchmarking work. It's really interesting to me just hearing you talk about that performance difference. And I'm curious if you have some sense of why that is, like what you're doing or not doing that's giving you such a performance boost. I think the answer is I'm not doing much, right? And that's 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 really it, right? Like there's like I'd, I'd mentioned before, there's not really a lot of there there. 
as my high school chemistry teacher used to say, right? When there isn't a lot of there there, there's nothing to do, right? Like I, we get from every line of code in Bandit is kind of laser focused on the problem of getting from an HTTP, like from, from a client sending, you know, all caps, get slash HTTP one point, you know, whatever the, whatever the request is, getting from that to a plug call. And then back again. Everything in the in the project is laser focused on that one specific task. And then so there's, you know, whatever isn't needed for that, whatever is superfluous to that is it's just not there. Like for example, I was looking at the cowboy at the at the ranch. This is the layer underneath cowboy, the ranch code the other day. And for some reason they have a CRC32 implementation in there. I have no idea why. Like I I I can't possibly see a reason that you would need it in a stat in a, in a socket stack but it, but it's there it's the cyclic redundancy code it's like a um a checksum kind of like a sha like a, like a hash code a very primitive early old school hash code i'm assuming there's a good reason for it but at the same time it just kind of like ranch is kind of aiming to be a bit more of a swiss army knife in that respect i would imagine that you know supports you know any number of protocols that may or may not be used whereas in 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 the case of bandit and thousand island you know, it exists for one reason. And every line of code in the project exists for one reason. So if someone was to swap out, you know, Cowboy with Bandit, are there sets of features that we would we would miss? There shouldn't be. From the perspective of a plug developer, because plug itself, as any API abstraction is, right, kind of constrains you in some way. If you were comparing, so Cowboy has what they call the 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 the, the Cowboy dispatch handler is the uh, plugs abstraction for an HTTP request. And if you've ever seen like the Plug Cowboy library, what Plug Cowboy does is adapt from a Cowboy dispatch handler to the Plug API. So it is just kind of an extra little layer of glue there between those two abstractions. And if you were to compare that the dispatch handler API with Bandit, it does more. But the reality is that as soon as you interact with either one of them via the Plug API, it doesn't matter because you can't reach that functionality anyway. Right, like plug as as again as any abstraction does, limits you and constrains you in terms of the things that you're able to do through that API through that boundary, right? Quite like very much on purpose. And so, to answer your question, no, there isn't really much that you'd see different between the two of them because we we fulfill the entirety of the plug API in the same way the cowboy does. So there are you know in an absolute sense, cowboy does do more things, but they're not anything that you would ever be able to notice or even reach from within a plug application. The, the the transition of moving, for example, a Phoenix application over to Bandit is a two-line change. You you add the line to your mix file and you add adapter colon bandit.phoenix adapter to your endpoint.ex file, or sorry, to your config.exs file. You restart it the next time and the startup line says it's running on Bandit and it just works. If you ever see any difference between those two implementations, then I've made a mistake somewhere. Which isn't to say that's not going to happen, but it's not anything that you would ever be able to notice. I would like to understand who is currently using Bandit. I presume that you are using it with the, the project that initially started this, but are there other people using it today? I don't know. It's still a fairly early project. I'm constantly surprised by the the, the people that reach out and the projects they reach out about. Like just the other day, I had uh, Howleth reached out about, he'd mentioned that he'd added Bandit support to the Erlang SystemD project, which I'd never even heard about before. But it's essentially a bunch of glue that allows Beam-based projects to be able to run and interface and, and be adapted really well into like the SystemD Linux startup ecosystem. So like I didn't even know it existed. And now it works with Bandit. That's pretty rad. 
the amount of attention and just kind of like traffic, frankly, that I've seen since the Phoenix implementation went out, the Phoenix announcement went out is just like an order of magnitude different from where it was a month ago. I've been, you know, showboating this thing pretty, pretty extensively for the past couple of years at conferences and stuff. And the 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 thing that I'd always heard was this sounds really cool. I can't wait for it to work with Phoenix. <laughs> you know, like nobody really cares about it until it's a 30 second change for them. You know, and even then, I mean, like, like I say, it doesn't do anything different beyond run a whole bunch faster, you know, and, and hopefully stay more ahead of, you know, of, of changes and, and just be, be more approachable as, as a library. So I don't really like, there's no grand new day that comes about when you switch to using it. Like it, I, ideally you shouldn't even notice it other than, you know, hopefully your, 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 your data dog dashboard load monitors going down. Maybe it's less about nobody cared and maybe it's more about now that it's a 30 second change and you're saying you can just get 5x improvement just by making a 30 second change. Now I'm extremely interested, right? <laughs> That's kind of my hope, right? And then also the fact that, you know, not that I've ever, I've ever really been aware. Like, I mean, I never started out this project with any intention of replacing Cowboy. Like it's never been about, you know, any comp any, any, any aspect of competitiveness or of throwing shade or anything like that. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the, the Cowboy Project isn't terribly active. I, you know, it gets a couple of commits a year and they're mostly cosmetic stuff. And I mean, granted, the underlying standards don't change too much, but it is nice to be able to see, you know, incremental improvements for things, things like being able to have benchmarking on, you know, for performance regression analysis, I think is going to be huge. Like I can quantitatively say that like we are 20 or 30% faster or like, you know, whatever, 20 or 30% less memory use versus the last release was pretty big. The fact that we run automated conformance against every suite that we can to be able to cover, you know, like a uh, third party essentially validation that we're, we're doing the relevant standards correctly, I think is, 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 is pretty nice. I want to understand a little bit more about what had to happen to make it so it can be this quick change to drop it into a Phoenix app. And like, what does that mean? The Phoenix announcement said that you did this work to make it possible. What had to happen to make it so that you could swap out the web server. Okay, so the thing to understand about Phoenix is th there's two there's really two parts to it, right? Like I mean there's a lot of parts to it, but there's there's HTTP and there's WebSockets. And on the HTTP side, that is and always has been plug, right? Like if you if you never used any of the WebSockets or any of the channel stuff in Phoenix, Phoenix really was just a plug. You could, you could serve it on, I, like Bandit was running Phoenix a year ago, only on HTTP, right? And that, like everything about that, that flow and, and, and the HTTP request response was always done through Plug and it still is today. Where it was different was on the WebSocket side. And the way that this was done originally, Phoenix's WebSocket implementation basically layered directly on top of the underlying Cowboy WebSocket implementation. So like I mentioned earlier that Cowboy has this, that the, the dispatch handler abstraction, it reached down into the dispatch handler abstraction for WebSockets and used that directly within Cowboy. And then so it was kind of a two-parter. The first part was essentially pulling back that abstraction out of Cowboy and adding a layer in there to, you know, figure out what the abstraction is, what the, essentially what the analogy of plug is, but for WebSockets. What are the, the different steps that a WebSocket connection goes through? What are the different things that a client and a server can do in a WebSocket world? And how, how do you model that abstraction? And so that got bundled up into the, um, it's called the WebSock library that I wrote originally, and it's now part of the Phoenix organization on GitHub. 
And that is probably never going to change. Like that's that's a it exists to define the standard, but I like it the standards defined, it'll probably never change. It basically just defines the specific functions that as a WebSocket server that you need to implement to be able to have an underlying web server talk to you via WebSockets. And then I had to go and write abstractions for that or implementations of that abstraction within both Bandit and within Plug Cowboy so that both Plant Plug Cowboy and Bandit are able to serve server implementations that, that, that implement the WebSocket interface. And that kind of got the everything working once you had a WebSocket connection up and running. So once you, you know, negotiate, set, we'll set aside how you actually get a WebSocket connection started. Once it was running, that got the bits about how to send and receive bits and uh, bytes and packets and frames back and forth, regardless of whether it was Cowboy underneath or whether it was Bandit underneath. And then the second part was about how you actually go and get a WebSocket connection started in the first place. And this is a bit of mystery that I think a lot of people I, I certainly didn't understand when I when I started down this path that WebSocket connections actually start as HTTP connections. And there's a specific set of headers that a client sends. They send it's like upgrade WebSocket connection upgrade. There's a little magic incantation that they send. And a server recognizes that, oh, this client's trying to upgrade to a WebSocket connection. And then it will send back essentially its response part of that that now that webs that HTTP connection is now a WebSocket connection. It just magically the same connection from the client to the server. Instead of sending get slash HTTP, blah, 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 back and forth, it now sends WebSocket frames back and forth. And so doing that actual upgrade was a bit of a back and forth. This was something that I'd written kind of, I'd taken my first stab at it initially. There was about three or four PRs that went up that Jose closed on the Phoenix application more or less right away. That it was like, no, this is not the right way. This is, you know, this is not like, I, it's, I don't want Phoenix to own this part of the abstraction. This needs to be, belongs to the server. Like, it was basically like a negotiation of like me as a server implementer negotiating with Jose as a framework implementer about where we wanted that, that compromise to be. Yeah. Where is the boundary of responsibility? Right, right, right. And it was, and I mean, it ended up in the fine place. Like it's, it, it ended up being, you know, like we, you know, like path dependencies being what they are, it probably could have been done a bit more efficiently, but you know, it, I'm really happy with how it turned out. And so the way that we implemented that, uh, that we implemented that was that I added in a uh, plug into the plug, you know, like there's plug.con.sendresp and read rec headers and all of those. There's now a function in there called upgrade adapter. You can send that back from within a plug application and say upgrade adapter colon WebSocket and then pass in some extra parameters and it will upgrade that. That will signal to the underlying adapter, whether it's Cowboy or Bandit, that it wants to now upgrade that. It should try to upgrade that connection to a WebSocket. And so the really cool thing about this that kind of falls out of this is that upgrading connections from HTTP connections to WebSocket connections is now completely mediated by plugs. And so... What this means is that in, in, in the old days, like before a month ago, within Phoenix, whenever you wanted to define a socket, you needed to do it in your endpoint file. And you needed to do it there because there was no, the plumbing didn't exist to get a WebSocket connection request from the server into wherever you needed to get to in Phoenix to be it. Like you couldn't, you couldn't pass it through the router the same way you could pass everything else through the router. But now... WebSocket upgrade requests are just plug requests, right? Like WebSocket upgrades are mediated via plug. Until it actually gets turned into a WebSocket connection, it's a plug connection. And so what this means is that you can pass those requests through the router and they route just like anything else does. 
And so those socket DSL, those socket stanzas that you now have in your endpoint file, we're actually going to take this, once the 1.7 dust settles from all the changes to components and whatnot, we're going to go and, and revisit this within the Phoenix project. That part of the DSL is now going to move into the, into the router DSL. And then so you can now define your sockets within your router, which is kind of a bit of a, a stupid human trick that's not super useful. But what it means is that things like the OBAN dashboard, now you can just say OBAN dashboard, blah, blah, blah. And it will know it will it will be able to handle within that D within its DSL all of the WebSocket stuff. So like right now, when you set up like live dashboard or OBAN dashboards or what have you, you have to do a bunch in your router file, and then you also have to add the corresponding socket thing into your endpoint. You're not going to have to do that anymore because we don't need the socket thing in the endpoint because the WebSocket request is is a plug. And so it routes just like any other plug request does. So that's going to be really, really cool. That's going to like, and we're going to shave a couple of hundred lines out of the endpoint file. It's going to be really nice. Okay. So you're just talking about changes. It sounds like Bandit only can take advantage of it and support that. Nope. Oh, really? So Cowboy, you could stay on Cowboy and still get those same benefits to plug in the redesign. Yep. Because I did all of these, all of these under, all of these changes work. That announcement that went out in 1.7 about how we now do different, like it now, you can now support other web servers. Part of that was making cowboys implementation underneath like the the plug cowboy the plug cowboy project behave the same way that bandit does in this respect so there's nothing special like like phoenix like cowboy is now at this point just one of like the way i call it is it's just one among many right it 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 happens to be the default web server but there's nothing special at all about how phoenix treats cowboy it is the exact same, uses the exact same APIs, the upgrade API and the WebSocket, API, the WebSocket API to serve those requests that it does with Bandit. There's no difference at all beyond the, the fact that when, you like, when, when it starts up and it looks at that for that adapter uh, definition in the config, it just defaults to phoenix.cowboy adapter. That's the only thing, that's the only way that Cowboy is in any way special at all. In every other respect, it uses the exact same APIs that Bandit does. That's really cool. I like that API. I like the sound of that API a lot better. I wanted to go back to where you were talking about upgrading WebSockets a long time ago. I don't even know. Maybe Mark can find it. We talked about a place where I worked where we did some performance work with WebSocket servers and we had a we had a live chat service that was, you know, hosting like 100 to 200,000 people concurrently on a single channel. And when we were doing some of that performance work, I remember that the most expensive part was upgrading like all of those requests coming in and connecting to the service once you got connected and you were on the cpu would die down and everything was fine but when masses of people are joining like 10,000 people a minute or 20,000 people a minute are joining right before an event that's when the cpu was spiking and we almost would crash until everyone was finally connected and then we would drop down to like some really low cpu percentage which i thought was pretty interesting Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing really special about an upgrade request, right? It's, 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 it's like every other HTTP request response, the client sends some headers and the server responds with some headers. And then, you know, just like upgrades the, the, the process to like at a, from a process perspective, I think one of the things might've been was that Cowboy, as you mentioned earlier, does, it has two processes per request. Whereas in Bandit, we have a sing we do everything within a single process. And that process, when you upgrade to a WebSocket request, becomes the WebSocket process. Like it just it essentially morphs 
Bandit has this notion of upgradable handlers, and that's just how it works internally. Like there's no extra process that gets spawned up. There's no short-lived process at connection time. Whereas I think in the case of Bandit, in, in the case of Cowboy rather, I think there might be a new process that gets spawned up. So that may be where that comes from. Be interesting to see that comparatively. Well, I want to touch on some of these other benefits that people might receive for upgrading their own projects to Bandit. And so like, this is assuming, you know, a future day where you feel like, yep, it's ready for prime time. We've got all of the validation of, uh, of our implementation of WebSockets and the performance and everything is where we want it. What kind of benefits do you think would draw people to it? A couple of things that I heard you say. So some of it is because Bandit is more tuned to converting a request into something that Plug can handle, it's a little bit more optimized there. So they might get a speed benefit. What other kinds of benefits might people receive? So there's two things that jump to mind. The first is really pragmatic, and that's the fact that the telemetry support within Bandit right now is awful because uh, it's been really it's been really provisional. But that's actually what I'm turning my attention to this week, and that's it's really boss. It's going to be especially from like a like a spans and a flame graph perspective. Like you're able to you'll be able to drill in in a really comprehensive way into like really low level aspects of your HTTP request response lifecycle and, you know, the cost of sending headers and how you send bodies and that kind of stuff. So from a visibility perspective, that's a that's going to be a big change. The second thing I think is a lot more kind of philosophical, and that's the fact that it's approachable and you can read it and you can understand it. And it, it looks like idiomatic Elixir code and idiomatic OTP code, which isn't to say that, that Cowboy doesn't. But, you know, I, I've been in this game for five or six years in the Elixir space, and I still have to struggle to read Erlang. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just a different beast. Not better or worse, just different. And not having to, you know, reboot your brain if you, when you do have to dive down into lower levels, I think is, is, is really helpful. We had this, this weird bug uh, at work last week in Cowboy that ended up taking us like several hours to diagnose. And it ended up just being like a pattern match that was busted up in the bowels of Cowboy. It was our mistake. It wasn't Cowboy. It was Cowboy's mistake. But it took a couple hours to diagnose that. And if that would have been Elixir code, it would have been five minutes. Just because it would have been, the stack trace would have made sense. I could have, you know, easily jumped over and been like, oh, that's where this thing is. Oh, this is that, th you know, th this is that structure that I'm trying to match against. Like it's the approachability and the the understandability of code from, I mean, both from a fixing bugs and, you know, just moving quickly perspective is one thing, but also just demystifying this stuff. You know, like I really, I keep pounding the table about this and every time, every chance I get that, like, I don't think that lower level code deserves the, the, the reputation it has as being unapproachable and, you know, like the domain of like gray hair, gray, gray bearded experts, you know, this stuff isn't hard. It's just, it's just a little bit more particular than a lot of other stuff that you write, but like, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no magic to it. It's it's, it's just code. It's all just code. I guess one other question I have is around it being Elixir code. I, I do see the benefit of if when I do need to dig down into another layer lower, that it's something that's I'm probably going to have a, the tools and the the skills more readily available for diagnosing and working with. But I was also wondering because you're adapting web requests to plug and plug is Elixir code and it's macro based. It's quite heavy macro usage. Does macros fit in at all to, to bandit? Because I know Erlang itself didn't have, you know, it doesn't have uh, macro support in the way Elixir does. Like, does that figure in at all? No, it, it, it doesn't. And that's, that's largely the fact that I didn't 
I mean, for all of that, that back and forth with Jose about getting stuff landed in Phoenix was was you know a little bit less efficient than it than it than it needed to have been. It beat the crap out of my brain about macros in a really good way. Like I I, I get them now in a way that like I always knew how to write them and you know mostly be proficient in them. But like I I it, it kind of has rewired a bit of my brain about how you know how they can be wielded, you know, to to really shift a lot of the burden to compile time. There's not a huge amount of places within Bandit that that's useful. If I ever get around to writing a, 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 the custom HTTP one parser rather than using the built-in one in Erlang, I think there might be some benefits there. But I think most of that stuff just disappears into Nibble Parsec anyway. Like the you know to the extent that there are th- that there is compile time uh, optimizations done there, they're they're not mine to worry about. But no, not generally speaking, no. There's not. A, I don't think. There's any actual explicit use of macros at all in either Bandit or Thousand Island at this point, although there might be now that I actually grok them. <laughs> I might I might start moving in that direction. So you've you've teased a little bit about what's coming up next. Like you said, this week you have some stuff that you're going to be working on around telemetry. What else do you have planned for the future of Bandit? So I'm I'm staging the releases out. Like it's right now I'm on the 0.6 branch, right? So I'm working on releases in 0.6. And the, the, the goal of that brand, of the 06 theme for stream for me is mostly around perf. So I want to get the micro benchmarks to be able to be quantitative about this stuff. And now I'm kind of just working through the different stacks through HTTP1, through H2, H2, and eventually WebSockets to essentially profile them, you know, make sure that the telemetry in them is rock solid and correct, get every reasonable performance gain that I can out of them without sacrificing clarity. Zero seven, which I expect to probably, I'll probably wrap that work up like January ish, maybe, depending on how long the winter is here. <laughs> you, you laugh, but it's true. When there's four feet of snow outside, is that like winter driven development? <laughs> pretty much, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then zero seven is going to be focusing on configuration, so just being able to expose a few, but like not not wildly differently, but just a few more dials and knobs for timeouts and uh, you know read limits and those sorts of things. And then beyond that. 08 is going to be a bake-in in in advance of a 1.0. I'd like the 1.0 to land probably next summer, so summer 2023. And then beyond that, and probably actually in tandem with that while I'm doing the bake-in, I've already started doing some early explorations for HTTP3 conformance. That's a huge workup because it actually is fundamental. The architecture of HTTP3 goes all the way down to the IP layer. It uses uh, like QUIC, the QUIC protocol, is actually based on UDP, not TCP. Like it's, it essentially re-implements most of TCP's abstractions on top of UDP. So that's going to be a really big workup. <laughs> that sounds fun. It's either going to be really fun or impossible. Probably <laughs> a little mix of both of them. But I, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that one. That's going to be a lot of fun to do. The user visible support of that will be the fact that you can serve HTTP three directly from within, from within, within Phoenix. That'll be the user visible aspect of it. And, and I'm sure that. There's probably a longer discussion with this, but I know every time I've heard about HTTP three, people also talk about WebSockets and like, why do you care about HTTP three if you also have H two with WebSockets or even H one with WebSockets? So I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of overlap there on like functionally what you can do here. But what do you figure folks will want out of HTTP three uh, that they don't already have? The 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 one really big thing that kind of blew my mind when I started researching about it was because everything so UDP doesn't have the notion of a connection right UDP are basically fire and forget packets they're they they each live individually and the way that they do 
sessions on top of that is that they give each they, within the payload of each of those they just have like a I can't remember if it's 64 or 128 bit but essentially like a session identifier and then and then the server is responsible for putting those back together so what this means is that you can go from your wired connection at home you can unplug your laptop switch over to your Wi-Fi you can start tethering you can get in the car you know do whatever you want to do and your connection never actually drops right you can you, the the ip address of either end of the connection can change and your connection never drops because there is no connection from a from an ip level there is no connection it's just a a bunch of would ju- could just as easily be unrelated udp packets so that's that's a neat thing i think that's kind of the thing that may end up for people at scale like you'd mentioned the thing about people joining websocket connections and there's being this thundering herd there as people come and go in different scenarios that might be something that you can optimize around that you don't have that. You never actually disconnect, right? Or at least the notion of disconnecting is something that as a server admin, you have some degree of control over. Beyond that, I mean, most of the benefits of these things honestly just accrue to the Googles and the, you know, the the Amazons of the world, you know? <laughs> right. No, it's it's true, right? I mean, these things matter greatly when you're, when you're at, like at that level of scale, but for... The other ninety nine point nine percent of us, it doesn't, you know, it's a it's a cool it's a cool party trick, but maybe not super useful. <laughs> I, I I tend to like open up the source on those like big websites too, just to see like what what am I actually downloading over the wire here? What am I? What's the optimizations here? These huge websites, these huge companies, they're still working on old tech, you know, sending lots of stuff over the wire. Like they're not as optimized as like they want you to. They they may make you believe <laughs> with all this uh, other research that's coming out the door, you know, from the same company, like, like the quick protocol and all that jazz. Like, are they actually using it? Not really. Not, not the ones that everyone's going to be hitting, you know, it might be a one or two teams or something. I'm, I'm totally making this up, but. I think some of that might just be uh, the different devices, like older devices that aren't getting active updates and things like that. I think of old Android phones where. Yeah. I mean, at least they're paving the way, but as far as like, what you're actually using, you go to Amazon.com, go shopping. No, that stuff is like horribly inefficient, what you're getting. <laughs> anyway, question for you, Matt. Since summer of next year is, is when you think 1.0 will hit, 1.0 might also be a good opportunity to rename. If you're if you're regretting the names, do you have any others uh, lined up? Do you have any other... I, I don't. I don't. I've learned to not give in to my worst instincts about naming because I... It, I, I'm not good at it, as as evidenced. To be honest, I think like it's kind of cute to have been named, and it is a bit of a tradition in the web server world to name yourself with respect to an existing web server, right? Like it's you know a, a, Apache did it, Cowboy did it. There are some really unfortunate circumstances beyond that last one, which I think is a big part of why I am kind of keen to maybe think about a rename. It's it's difficult, right? I mean, naming things is hard, and it's 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 one of the cl- it's one of the two hard problems for a reason. <laughs> I think Bandit's a fine name, and nobody needs to know about Thousand Islands. It's just it's <laughs> just another layer down there that nobody ever dives into. <laughs> well, I always get a kick out of that when you see these projects, right? That are like like Plug has I don't know two thousand or three thousand stars on GitHub. Plug Cowboy has like. A <laughs> hundred? Yeah. It's, it's a detail. Yeah. 
It's a detail that no, nobody cares about, right? And it's the same. It ought to be the same thing with Thousand Island, right? Like it, if it has, if it ever has, you know, more than I think it has about half the stars on GitHub that uh, that Bandit does. But no, I'm surprised that many people even care about it. Well, yeah, I understand. Yeah, that uh, you you know you honor the you know the the the, the ones that came before you, right? With a with a relevant name or a associated name. You know, just throwing this out there, plug is also highly, you know, informative to how you're architecting this thing and lots of inspiration there. And plug is its own thing. At least I don't think plug is related to the whole bandit patchy, you know, stuff. <laughs> well, the, the WebSock, the WebSock library that I written, I had originally called SOC, right? On the, like the plug and SOC were just kind of nice little, both rolled off the tongue, both were kind of, you know, analogs of each other. And that was actually one of the things that we'd negotiated between Jose and I. Was the rename to WebSock because he's like, this does not make this doesn't make sense from a framework perspective. Like a framework's gonna look and be like a framework user's gonna look at this and be like, what the hell is a sock? <laughs> so which I mean, like, fair point. Blue cheese if you rename it. Blue cheese. Blue. <laughs> Can you imagine a day when maybe Bandit or whatever its renamed incarnation is happens to be the default web server that's shipped with Phoenix, is that something you could see happening? I'd like to get there. It's a it's a tall ask, and I like I don't. I've been in the game long enough to know that those aren't the sorts of decisions that you make lightly. You know, you don't you don't you know you don't want to go in with bravado, thinking that I you know we're quantitatively better than you know than than, than, than the status quo. I'd like to get there, but I'd like to get there because it is quantitatively better than the status quo. You know, and to get there from a reason, you know, from a like a reason set of choices. This is why, like the zero eight bake in for me is going to be really critical. You know, of just making sure like, and this is pretty common, I think, with most projects, but like the bugs that I find and that I fix these days in Bandit are ones that I'm like, how the heck did I ever write this in the first place? One of the other maintainers and I have been going back and forth on this like content length parsing bug that is like, this, this is this, how did this work? You know, <laughs> like, and it's, you know, it's, 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 it's embarrassing at this, you know, at this, like, I'd like to think that Bandit has some level of maturity to it, but it's like, you find these bugs that are like, this was dumb. How how is this still here? You know, I deleted I deleted some dead code that was never actually used in Bandit. I was like, how, why was this even here? So like, you know, I want to get to the point where like, I think maybe that's a good metric is like if I've had six months of no less than one WTF per month, maybe that's 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 maybe that's when it's ready. So are you looking for people to help out? Is there a way people can contribute to this? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I've actually struggled with with the project is I'm a I, I use the the things app to run my life on like independent of bandit and I'd live and die in things like hundreds of times a day I'm in there. And so that sta- that's also where I track all the stuff that I have to do with bandit, but obviously not the best place to be able to share it with the community. I mean, I've kind of been struggling with how to be able to communicate this with people, you know, like of the things that do need doing, there isn't a whole lot of good prior art for this on the internet either. Like there isn't a whole lot of, examples uh, of, you know, I guess, and if any listeners have any, any examples of projects that do a good job of being able to, you know, advertise and schedule and, 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 you know, like, like, like Dola at work, I'd love to hear about them. There's a lot of stuff to be done. A lot of them are really, and the project now is at the point where a lot of these are pretty digestible, you know, things like going and looking at telemetry, you know, is a thing that like somebody can kind of pick up and, 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 you know, solve that one problem. Some like stuff about URI parsing, like there, there, there are things that are pretty grokkable for a first, maybe not quite a first ticket, but definitely like a, 
you know, an early, an early contributor ticket. I just, I'm, I struggle with how to be able to go and actually share those with people. I, I think typically for open source projects, what I've seen across other repos is that issues will be created and they might throw labels on there saying like good first issue. I think the Elixir project actually does this. So that's, I mean, it's the only suggestion I have <laughs> yeah, other than that. I, I did that for a while on Thousand Island and it just seemed a bit like, I don't know, it just seemed, it just seemed really noisy. I've been meaning to look at the GitHub project stuff for this too, maybe. Might be a good spot for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all good stuff, yeah. Well, thank you, Matt, for joining us. I have really enjoyed getting a, a deeper look at what Bandit is, where it came from, why you're able to make these claims about performance and why that makes sense. It's like, okay, I get it now. That's really cool. And I love how this can be something so easily that I can drop in and I can swap out Bandit in my current app, run all my tests and just see do I have a level of confidence? Maybe I could deploy this to staging. What is that like? You know, just getting some confidence and be able to do that so easily. So yeah, I'm excited to see where this goes. Thanks. It's been a, it's been a real fun journey. I'm, I'm also excited to see where it goes. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.